This is Comic Shadigans, episode 822, A Conversation with Ian Flynn. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 822. It's my conversation with Ian Flynn, who has most recently, well, he's been a Sonic writer for a long, long time, which we'll get into uh, throughout the course of this interview as we uh, trace the beginnings of uh, Ian as uh, both a comic book fan and as a Sonic the Hedgehog fan, and how that eventually led him to decide, I could write Sonic comics, and where he has been doing, for the most part, for the last 15 or so years, uh, with uh, various different projects he's worked on. Sonic uh, the Hedgehog and Sonic Universe for Archie Comics. He's worked on the most recent IDW um, relaunch of Sonic for the last few years, which originally I think started coming out in April 2018, I believe. Um, so he's got a lot of Sonic knowledge. So we d- dive right into uh, you know the Sonic comics. Uh, also, just how do you write a licensed comic like Sonic, and how, what is that uh, relationship like with Sega? So I really enjoyed this conversation with Ian. It was a lot of fun, and I, I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's uh, even if you're not necessarily a fan of uh, the Sonic the Comic, I think you're still get a, a kick out of hearing his stories of just about how he kind of puts things together uh, and how his career has been traced as well. I definitely took a lot from this interview. You can always email me at comic shenanigans at gmail.com. Uh, you can rate and view us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again, and uh, without further ado, I'll jump right into the conversation with Ian Flynn. Enjoy. Ian, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Thank you. So uh, glad to have you on. Um, it's funny. I uh, I'm embarrassed to say this, but a couple years ago, uh, when Son of the Hedgehog first got a, started being published by IDW, um, I started picking it up for my son, and I reached out almost immediately, being like, "Hey, I should have you on the show," and then forgot about it, and I felt bad about it ever since. Um, but I, you know, we're still reading it. I read it with my my son. He's now seven years old. Um, so we, you know, every time a new issue comes out, he's so excited. There was a little bit of time there where I was kept missing the issues and having to like order them for back issues. And then he was like, "Where's the new one?" I'm like, "We can't read the new one until we read the one we missed." And so he's been a huge fan. So I'm super excited to actually have you on the show finally after two and a half years after I initially asked you to come on. So thank you for not holding that against me. Well, number one, I'm very happy your son is enjoying it. It's very cool that you're reading it with him. Number two, I have forgotten that you initially approached me. And to be fair, I forgot what breakfast was. So nothing personal. I can't hold on to a thought. I I will take that. I appreciate that. Um, actually, that does bring up a, 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 a. I have a whole usual uh, kind of uh, bent I go in terms of timelines. But I do have a question that kind of comes up. Is that how often... Like from feedback you get from fans, how how often is it fathers and sons or parents and kids reading these comics that you know maybe they picked up because they used to play Sonic when they were a kid, and then their their kids really like it as well? Like how often is that the kind of feedback that you get? I get that a lot, and one of the best moments when I'm ever I'm doing a convention is when the uh, family comes up and they tell me the story of how their child was well behind where they should be in terms of reading proficiency. And then they picked up the Sonic book, and for whatever reason, that clicked. Hmm. And they have caught up or exceeded 
where they should be at a reading level. And that kind of validates my existence. <laughs> so, but yeah, there's a lot of families that read it. There's a lot of um, young professionals that I've met who said, I grew up reading your book. And after I feel my back lock up and have a sudden desire for prune juice, I remember, <laughs> oh yeah, I've been doing this for a long time. But yeah, it, it's very common for this. It, it's a family series. It always has been. So it's really cool to hear about the families that read it together or the way that it's helped young people learn to read or has inspired them and they have stuck with it all through childhood. It's all gives you the warms and fuzzies, you know? <laughs> how, how do you think Sonic as a, I mean, I, I guess partially, partially this comes from, from the fact that Sega wants it this way, but like how, what has allowed Sonic to still remain, you know, so kid friendly, but also still enjoyable to adults without you know, feeling like it has to age up. I mean, I don't know if you followed recently where Jerry Conway was kind of on Twitter saying that, you know, his generation ruined comic books because they started making it for an older audience. And they kept doing that, and they kind of, you know, alienated that younger reader. But Sonic hasn't done that, and it's, you know, the comic, you know, he's existed in comic book format for a long time now, as well as cartoons and video games. So what do you think helps to keep him still firmly in that family-friendly format without it alienating either audience? Oh, that's a multifaceted one. Um, <laughs> number, the most obvious one is the design. They're you know brightly colorful animal people with superpowers and big expressive faces and big bombastic adventures. You have a very uh, neat and tidy environmental message: don't destroy the planet, fight the bad man who's trying to take over the planet with his robots. It's very injury level. You know, good versus evil. So in that regard, it's very accessible. But I think with Sonic is that it's not afraid to have a little bit of teeth. There are some literal world-ending stakes, even if it is sometimes your Saturday morning resolution. And it's never really ashamed of itself. It's It knows what it is. It is a action-adventure that embraces all things weird and wacky. There's just, there are detours within the characters and the backstory and the lore that kind of make you step back and go, wait, this, this is Sonic. (laughs) But yeah, it's Sonic. It just does. He keeps moving and it kind of embraces anything that's topical and has fun with it. And never really looks back too hard at itself and goes, ah, this is kind of childish. It embraces itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that may be the crux of it all is superhero books with these colorful characters, with these fantastic powers and outlandish stories and whatnot have tried really, really hard to be accepted by the masses, I guess. It's, we want the cool kids to see how cool we are, so we're going to add in all the blood, sex, and violence to show that we're really mature and we're <laughs> gritty and we're not ashamed of the fact that our millionaire philanthropist dresses as a bat and beats up the homeless. It's, you know, for pity's sake, his name is Batman. Yeah. <laughs> have, have some fun with it. It's kind of like you've got your year one and then you've got your brave and the bold. You know, one tries to bring it down to earth and this that's not knocking year one it's a fantastic book 
but it tries to take the ridiculous premise and make it as realistic as possible. And then you've got Brave and the Bold that just embraces the cartoony nature that is inherent to the series. And I'm not saying one is right or one is wrong, but the mainstream superhero books seem to have all skewed towards the we-need-to-tell-epic-adult stories, which is fine. And you know the audience that has grown up to a point may want more mature reading, but they've left the core behind. Mm-hmm. So when you have stuff like the MCU, which does a more general audience's fun interpretation of the material or you have the various cartoon series that boil it down to the basics and people really get into it because even if it is like the 700th time that we're seeing peter getting all sweaty palm because oh no mj is cute we know the story but we're seeing it in a fresh way that is relatable we don't necessarily need peter to make a deal with the devil so that he can go back to dating again (laughs) no like it's that it kind of it wants to move forward, but it also doesn't want to go anywhere, and it lacks any kind of definitive direction. Whereas Sonic and book and material of its ilk are here is today's adventure. We are fighting a wizard from the literal King Arthur legend, <laughs> and now she's beaten, and we're going back to have a chili dog. And that's just a day in the life of Sonic. And in that moment, it's life or death peril. And at the end of it, you're like, okay, that was fun. And you move on. It's that really precarious balance of having the world take itself seriously while you don't expect the audience to necessarily take it fully seriously. Hmm. You go into Sonic knowing you're going to get high-octane, colorful, cartoony adventure... And the characters treat it as this serious matter, so it feels like it has some gravitas. But you can get in as invested as you want. It's either deeply engrossing because, oh my goodness, this truly is the end of the world, or it's, ha, that's fun. <laughs> so let's go back for a second. So, I mean, I like to ask usually, you know, when did comics first come into someone's life as in kind of you know, show up and start to mean something. But I guess for for you, it's not only that question, but also considering how much of Sonic you've written, when did Sonic first come into your life as well, and what kind of impact did he initially have on you? Um, In general, I always had comics in the house. It was not something that I sought out. It just, it happened to be there. Uh, Nothing of a serious collection, just, you know, a Thundercats book here, a (laughs) Get Along Gang book there. Here's an issue of Archie. Here's an issue of spider-man and um i distinctly remember that one archie issue because i read it a lot and it was the class went on some trip up into the mountains and archie got lost and he almost got eaten by a wolf but then like the school janitor who was with them was also packing heat so he shoots the wolf (laughs) and i've never seen another archie story quite like that have you ever found it or like do you still have it No, no, it got read to pieces years ago, and (laughs) when I was working with Archie, I asked the editor at the time, do you happen to remember this off the top of your head? And he kind of looked at me like I was speaking Swahili, and it's like, okay, no, you you don't remember that one. But there's like (laughs) 900-something issues, so you can't remember them all. As for Sonic, I 
kind of danced around it for a little bit and it just kept reaching for me. Uh, I watched the Saturday morning cartoons, of course, because they were on and they were fun because it's Sonic. Uh, I dabbled in the comic a little bit at the time and it was right around the time there was this big industry-wide shipping issue that lasted like two or three months. Mm. And I was so mad that I couldn't get my X-Men fixed that I bought a Sonic issue to show them what for. I spent my money elsewhere. (laughs) Oh, wait, this is interesting. Maybe I'll give this one too. And then my best friend uh, in middle school gave me – he was a big fan of it. And he gave me an issue out of the blue number 34 or something and said, I feel like you should have this. And I read it, and it was deep into a current story arc, and I had no idea who the new characters were, and I had very little idea of what was going on. But darn it, I got hooked. <laughs> and you know, every little editor's note at the bottom saying, oh yes, this is referencing issues such and such, or go read this special to catch up. I'm like, well, now i got to know the whole story, and that's how they got all my money, and that's how my addiction began. <laughs> and then the nail in the coffin was my dad brought home the Sega Genesis Sonic 2 bundle one mm. day. I don't even think it was for Christmas. I think he just bought it because <laughs> he wanted it, and that was it. My little brother and I would play Sonic 2. He would be Tails. We would treat it like some kind of tactical mission. Okay, Tails, you go on ahead. You draw their fire, and then I'll rush in behind you, and we'll take down Robotnik. And <laughs> took it very, very seriously. So- and it was just that media blitz all at once that finally got me. And I kind of stuck with it ever since. Now, had you played Sonic 1 before that, or had the comic kind of come first for you? Uh, It's hard to say what came first because of the aforementioned inability to retain any kind of knowledge, (laughs) but uh, uh, they kind of all coincided. I did go back and play Sonic 1 after we started with Sonic 2, because you got to go back. you got to see how it started. Of course. And then, you know, it was all over Sonic 3, Sonic Knuckles, and you know, hoarded my lunch money for months to buy a Dreamcast so I could get Sonic Adventure at launch. Played through most of the game. I had the free demo station at Toys R Us when it was coming out. It was... <laughs> wow, so that's a big Sonic fan. And thankfully I've been able to make it work for me, because otherwise it would just be sad. <laughs> well, I guess, so how, how do you end up writing Sonic? Like, when we fast forward to the, you know, I guess, what, 2007 or so, like, how do you end up actually writing and, and working on Sonic? Because that seems like the dream job, if that's, you know, something you love that much and that you're passionate about. And at the time, I mean, we would have been, what, like, 24, 25? Yeah, um, I started pursuing my English degree in 2001, 2002, and it very quickly dawned on me that... I needed a plan after university Hmm. and that would either be teaching English or asking if you want to tries with that. (laughs) So I figured I like to write. I'm fairly good at it. I like the Sonic book. I guess I'll write for the Sonic book. How hard can it be to break into the comic industry? Really? (laughs) And, um, I did it the exact wrong way. I compiled, uh, improvised scripts and sent them unsolicited to the editor with cover letters and letters of recommendation from my professors. And I beat on that door for four years. Wow. And it just so happened that the fourth time around, 
there was a shuffle in editors. They were restructuring things. And the editor at the time, Mike Pellerito, was very interested in bringing in new talent and broke, did the taboo and read my pitch and reached out to me in October of four and said, you're not bad, kid. Let me show you how you should be doing it. Showed me the ropes, how to format a script, how to do a formal pitch, had me do some uh, early inventorying of data and stuff. So I'm, you know, cataloging all my knowledge of the comics at this point and organizing it so he has it on file. And that was October of 04, we'll say. And then I was lead writer by March of 05. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, I it was one part perseverance, one part talent, and then ten parts luck. I It was that fluke moment that got me my chance, and I have ridden that as far as I can for <laughs> as long as I can. Well, one thing I love about that is, and I, I don't mean this in any way as a rude way, but it's something about uh, the delightful arrogance of youth being like, I, oh, could yeah. do, I could do this. Like, I remember like when I got my first job at, at a bank, I had first interviewed at one bank and they were like, oh, well, have you as a teller for a year? And I was, again, and this is not the way you're supposed to act, but I was in my head going, I just did four years at university. I shouldn't be a teller. I should be, you know, an advisor. I could do this. And so I went to another institution that did give me that shot. But looking back on it, I'm like, wow, I was super arrogant. I really had no right to think that. And I'm lucky that someone took a chance on me. But wow, like that was not (laughs) the best mentality. But it was just one of those things. When you're younger, you don't really realize that. It's good when you can at least notice it later. Oh, yeah. And now I'm getting... um emails and letters from other aspiring writers who were about my age at that time saying, how do I do this? How do I you know, follow in your footsteps? And I try to be as encouraging as possible, give them all the basic info, you know, stuff that I didn't have uh, easy access to growing up. But at the same time, I try to instill in them the notion that I got lucky hmm. and they absolutely should pursue their dream. They mu- I want them to succeed I want them to do exactly what they want to do, even if it denies me a job. But I also don't want them to be where I was and think, oh, this is easy. That hairy guy did it. Surely I can do it. (laughs) It's like, go for it. I will help you as best I can, and I really hope that you can achieve your dream. But at the same time, don't give up your day job because life is life. Absolutely. It's funny. I was, I uh, had an interview actually last week with Rick Hoberg, who was a storyboard artist on a lot of different Marvel projects throughout the years, worked on X-Men, the animated series, Avengers, Earth, Mighty's Heroes. He also was a, you know, a comic book artist as well in the seventies, seventies, eighties and nineties. And he was talking about mentoring. Cause I brought it up cause uh, a, a different guest had said how I should have him on because he was such a great mentor to him. So I asked him what was so important about mentorship. And, you know, he was talking about how important it was to give back and how it meant something to him when someone helped him when, when he first started. But he also put it in very kind of blunt terms, too, saying, you know, I don't know who's going to be able to give me a job later. And so if I'm nice to them and help them along, they might help me later. And that's helped yeah, sure. them more often than not. And that's an interesting part of uh, mentoring that we don't always think about. That and the industry is so small and so insular. There are very few ways in. So you want the new talent and, you know, they'd say you want to network as well because you never know 
who's going to be coming along and might give you the break you need later on. Absolutely. So when you first kind of come on and you're the new head writer, like what, what, when you first took over, what was your kind of first, like, you know, I'm the, I'm the head guy now. How do I make my mark or how do I keep true to the character? Like how much pressure did you find yourself under to work, be working on a licensed character like that? Oh, I freaked myself out. <laughs> like I figured I would be kind of a secondary cause at the time the book had two writers, one who handled the main series and one who did side stories. And I figured that was what would happen, that one person would lead and I would do side stories. And then, you know, maybe in a little while I'd get to pitch a lead story. And instead I was, I was the lead. I was the whole thing. So my approach was to tell the Sonic stories that I had wanted to see in the book up to that point, but also to honor everything that had come before me. Because there had been numerous other creatives involved and the old book had gone in some wild directions. <laughs> and as creative and as interesting as those were, they were also way off what was the core of the franchise, I felt like. This also coincided in the time when, uh, quick history lesson, when Sonic first started to come into being, there was a pretty clear divide in the eastern and western marketing uh japan kind of treated sonic their way and sega of america treated sonic in their own special way and that's why you had such different interpretations of sonic in the early 90s Hmm. uh come dreamcast era sega of japan decided to consolidate everything and a very big effort was made to not so much fold in the Western interpretations as bury them. So they were being more attentive to what the Western market was doing. So my attempts to steer the book closer to brand really was fortuitous at the time, because that's exactly where they wanted us to go. Hmm. And there would be notes that came in saying, you know, this is not kosher for Sonic. And the reply was going, you let us do this for 10 years, now we got to change it? <laughs> okay. And it was, it could be some pretty tri- tricky balancing acting. So when, sorry to ask maybe a dumb question, but like working with a licensor like Sega, like how, like how involved were they and, and how, what, 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 what form did those notes and kind of conferences come through? Like, was it more direct story meetings with Sega or is it more just kind of passing things along through your editor and kind of through up through the chain? Like how did that process kind of work and how easy was it for you to kind of adapt to that structure, which is obviously so different than most comic book structures? Well, this was my first professional gig, so I didn't really have to adapt. The whole thing was a learning experience for Mm. me. Uh, It was all new, and whatever I was doing was right at the time, because that's how I was doing it. I had no gears to shift. It just was what I knew, because that's what I was being taught. Uh, In the old book, all of the go-between was with my editor. So I would pitch the story concept and script through him. He would send it up through their licensing team. They would send notes back. I would revise, and we'd play tennis like that. Uh, They were, in retrospect, very giving, considering how far afield the material had gone and what we were allowed to do to continue those stories and those characters. 
Uh, I would say it was mostly hands-off insofar as they didn't really weigh in too much on the plot lines or the characters. It was just, we would send something in and they'd say, no, you can't do that, or don't do that with this character, or this element is off-limits, and we would revise around that. Hmm. With the present book, Sega is a much more active participant in all the proceedings. Uh, I still go through the editor who goes through licensing, but Sega has more of a direct influence on character design and plotting, but they are also interested in seeing what we do with the material in ways that I don't think would have ever been approved on the old book. So some elements are very familiar to me and others feel like I have to unlearn everything that I learned up to this point. Well, when this is again, maybe a question you can't answer, but I'm curious about the shift over to IDW and what, I mean, do you have any sense of that was coming and then were you very happy to be able to be kept on or as opposed to, you know, not being brought over when it was relaunched? Like how was that process kind of handled on your end at least? Uh, it was a complete surprise. Uh, I got a call from my editor saying, you know, Merry Christmas, looking forward to working forward with, to you. We're heading up to the dual anniversaries for the main book and the sister book. The future looks bright. Can't wait for it. And about an hour, he called me back and said, so we lost the license. Wow. And it's like, oh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> so I was in a bit of a panic because that was my job. Yeah. <laughs> And sure, it was freelance, but it had been steady for years, which is a blessing in and of itself. I don't begrudge that at all. It's just it was, you know, all of a sudden, what do I do? I was the Sonic guy. I didn't really do much outside of Archie at the time. I'd done the Sonic books. I'd done their Mega Man book. I'd done a smattering of little Archie things here and there, but that was the extent of my portfolio. I didn't really have any connections within comics in general. So that was a very tense year, I will say. And then IDW got the license, and I put out what feelers I could, but again, I didn't have a ton of connections. And from what I've heard between uh, folks in marketing knowing about you know what the old team used to do, and apparently fan demand was a large, large factor, IDW reached out to me saying, okay, we're starting up a Sonic book, you know how to do a Sonic book. Would you be interested in helping us out? <laughs> and I said yes, you know, very politely in text, but behind the computer screen, I was just kind of weeping for joy. It's like, ah, I get to play with my old toys again. I'm back in the saddle. Yay, me! When when you took over, I mean, or not take over, but like you, you continue the book, um, was it a very clear directive to kind of keep it as kind of light and you know, kind of continuity uh, light at the beginning where you reference uh, like kind of the last battle, but you don't really necessarily get into it. Like, I, I apologize for not having read the prior uh, Sonic book because, as I said, I kind of got into it with when my son did. But I'm curious uh, how the decision and to kind of layer the story out from the beginning where you kind of jump in kind of, you know, right after something big happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first question I asked was, you know, is there any possibility we could pick up where we left off with the old book? And that was a resounding no, which didn't surprise me, but I had to ask. So I figured it's a new publisher. It's a new deal with the licensor. It's a new shot at Sonic. Let's just make it new. 
make it a clean cut so that fans of the old book don't get misled. They know that this is a new outing. They don't come in with any expectations aside from, you know, we know this creative team, we know what to expect that way. Um, and the previous books had been these big, sweeping, intricate narratives with lots of subplots and lots of characters and lots of history all tying it together. So at least with what I call season one, the first 12 issues, I wanted to keep it almost shonen manga-esque, something that was punchy and episodic and to the point, so that folks who were picking up this book for the first time, you know, may have been scared away by the continuity of the old one, would be able to dive right in, and fans of the old book would be able to get a feel for what we were doing right out of the gate. This all coincided with Sonic Forces, which was the newest tentpole title for the franchise, so to me it made sense to just follow up on that. That would have had the most media exposure right before, so I figured that would be what the general audience would be familiar with, pick up that ball and run. Hmm. The amount of times my son has asked me, when's Infinite going to show up? (laughs) Sadly, he is off limits at the moment. So what is that process like? I mean, like, uh, you know, that was, again, a nice, a big Sonic game that came out that actually had more storyline as opposed to Sonic Mania or something like that. So being able to build off of that, um, did you find that, you know, kind of freeing to be able to, again, kind of go continuity light and kind of to to do all new stories and go in new directions without kind of the encumbrance of the old? Or was that ever really a problem for you? No, it it was bittersweet because in the old book, the series had gone in a, all its winding directions for, shoot, what, 12-something years or so? Mm-hmm. And then partway through my run, for legal reasons, we had to restart the storyline. Complete reboot. So everything I had planned was out the window. So what we did from there was we tried to build a story that was immediately closer to the main line, but also true to the feel of the old book. And we began building up that world again, introducing more characters, more regions, and we had just about finished laying the foundation to go forward and go nuts with it when the license was ended and the IDW book started. So... To be able to approach it from a fresh direction and a new start and something that was a little lighter with just enough game foundation so you're not floundering was kind of nice. You know, you're given a fresh easel and you're said, you know, do your thing without any of the baggage that came before. Hmm. On the other hand, that was twice now that I had visions for the <laughs> little blue hedgehog that I had to just let go entirely. And that's upsetting. So, you know, it's a licensed book. It's not your property anyway. You kind of got to take it as it comes. So before I ask a few more IDW questions, I have a question. So in that kind of interim period where, you know, Archie loses the license, how did Archie kind of keep you busy so that you kind of stay afloat until the next project, big project came around? Like, I think they gave you some other projects to work on, no? They did. They, they offered me what they could. Um, they're not a big publisher, so they're 
titles were limited, and a lot of the folks that were on those titles were, you know, kind of set at that point. But I think I got to do a couple of uh, Jughead issues, a few uh, Archie, at least in terms of co-writing. I uh, got in on the ground floor to pitch a few things, did a little bit of the new Crusaders. Uh, Cosmo, we relaunched Cosmo, which was a lot of fun. So they they gave me what, what I what they could, and I appreciate that. Did it feel like it was just kind of something like it was just the next the kind of the uh, the bridge to the next thing? Like did it did it feel like that at the time? Like I, I you know I can only imagine what that must have felt like. Again, you were the Sonic guy, and suddenly Sonic's going away from your pub, the publisher you're used to working with, and you don't know where to go next. So like what what kind of a crossroads did you feel like you were at at that time? If it even felt that way? Oh, I was lost in the woods. Because uh, while I had had a few side jobs over the years, Sonic had been my main gig. That I was able to live off of Sonic. So I had no other job skills. So that made you know sending out resumes to any other kind of employment a little daunting. And uh, like I said, the industry is very insular, so even if I were to reach out to other publishers they probably would have been booked up anyway. Hmm. So it was kind of groping in the dark for a bit. It did kind of light a fire under me to get my own stuff up and running because I can always rely on me, (laughs) he said, hopeful. (laughs) And it was just a moment of being adrift. You know, what do you do? Take the projects where you can, hope they turn into something. Uh, Ask your buddies if they've heard anything and, you know, flip chicken for a little bit because the lights got to stay on. Absolutely. Now, when, so you, you start writing, um, the IDW Sonic, when you take it over, did you have in mind how long you'd stick around? Like, obviously like, like to stick around forever, but like given that you were kind of getting it started for them, did you feel like it was kind of a case by case basis and maybe you were just there to kind of get it set up and then make it someone else? Or did they kind of feel like, no, we want you for the long haul? Like what, what did that feeling feel like now that you're starting with a new, a new uh, publisher? I had finally learned the lesson of don't take anything for granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, Like I said, when we rebooted the old book, I figured, okay, well, this thing obviously has legs. It's been doing this for over a decade. We'll just start over and build up and do as we did before. And no, no, that wasn't going to work. So with IDW Sonic, I figured I'm here for as long as they have me. I will do the best that I can. But I'm not going to think of it as my career anymore. Mm. It's... I'm happy. I'm very thankful to have it, but you never know when the shoe is going to drop and I need to move on to something else. So I've always had my eye out for other prospects, other media, other opportunities. Uh, I've been extremely blessed to have the tenure that I did on IDW, um, 32 issues uninterrupted as lead writer, plus a mini series, plus some side stories. And I'm still on board as a contributing writer. I've got some stuff lined up for 2021. I've got some other side songs of doing some. I'm not going far. It's just IDW is you know testing the waters with Evan Stanley, who is a creative tour de force by herself. Because you know, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, what would they do for a writer? <laughs> they, you need a talent pool larger than one. Yeah. So uh, she's been 
working on Sonic stuff for years and years and years too. So it's I'm quite happy to have the book primarily in her hands now. And she's super easy to work with as we planned out the next year's worth of stuff. So Is it weird to it, let go though of you've been the main Sonic writer for so long? It is a little bit. Um part of it is fun though because I get to read the book again as a fan. There's still a professional level there because I know what's going to happen. I know where it's going, but I'm not part of the process start to finish anymore. So, you know, I'll pick up the new issue and it's like, oh, they went with this direction or the art told this story this way. That's neat. How can I use that maybe later on down the line? And it's kind of weird, but it's also kind of refreshing and fun. And with uh, <laughs> no offense to Evan, I'm really happy that it happened when it did because having just finished the last story arc, which was super duper high stakes, super dramatic, super dark in tone, I was kind of sweating bullets going, all right, what do I do for an encore? <laughs> and then the editor said, we're going to let Evan take over for a little bit. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm off the hook. I don't have to think about it. <laughs> Good luck, Evan. It's all yours. So the reason why I asked the question about like how you originally took kind of uh, interpreted coming back to the book, and, and I was I'm more curious about also your your planning in terms of you know prior to uh, the license or switching or the publisher switching it over, um, you know you were building up to you know these big anniversary issues, and then you start again at issue one. How far in advance were you kind of plotting? Like I was recently rereading the run the first year with my son, and I couldn't. Re- I couldn't. I was surprised at how early you kind of introduced the idea of the the metal virus. Like it's it seeded pretty early in that first year when you have like a silver come back. But I didn't. I didn't obviously know it at the time. But now looking back on it, it's hard to not see that. How how methodical were you in kind of building out the long term strategy? Uh, with IDW. I wasn't as McIlvanian as I was with the previous arcs. The previous book, I would seed in multiple subplots with super long-term goals. But with IDW, I didn't want to go back to that old habit. I wanted the story to be fairly straightforward, fairly episodic, and something you can pick up and enjoy self-contained by itself. With Silver's story and that hint... I knew what I wanted to do with Metal Virus, but I left the premonition open-ended enough so that if the pitch didn't get picked up, or if I wasn't around for the next story arc, it would be open to interpretation and we could do something else. Hmm. So, you know, plant the seed, but be prepared for it to grow in any direction. Uh, To my delighted surprise, Metal Virus was picked up in pretty much its entirety as I pitched it, and it made it seem like I had everything planned from the very beginning, and that I was brilliant, and, (laughs) you know, crossed all my T's, dotted all my I's, and knew exactly what I was doing. So, it's just nice when a plan comes together, you know? Absolutely. Now, when you're working with Sega, what is it like to bring in new characters, as well as, obviously, you know, the traditional ones that people are more used to. What does that process kind of look like? I mean, because obviously, you know, they can end up spinning those characters in other places if they want to. Uh, so what is, you know, what has that situation been like? With IDW specifically, the new characters are designed to feel 
niches, niches, excuse me, that have not been filled. Uh, for example, Tangle is meant to be your quintessential Sonic buddy. She's high energy. She has a clear gameplay mechanic built into her design. And she's meant to be just this fun female character because you don't get a lot of those. Hmm. Amy Rose is the girlfriend and is unfortunately restricted in a lot of the action she can take. Cream is the little girl who doesn't always get to go on adventures. Rouge is oddly sexualized for a cartoon animal. <laughs> so Tangle's meant to be that baggage-free, high-octane, adventuring buddy that rounds out a very male-slanted cast. Uh, Whisper is meant to be the other end of the spectrum because you don't have a lot of taciturn or reserved characters. Everyone is brightly colorful and in-your-face with these big powers and just going, going, going all the time. And Whisper was meant to be you know, starkly opposed to all that. Being a sniper, being someone who is off to the side, someone who speaks softly and carries a big variable response. <laughs> uh, rough and tumble. You know, you have Dr. Eggman as the big bad. And you have all of his robots, which are virtually devoid of any personality. So you don't really have a rogues gallery. You have the one note of Dr. Eggman is the big threat. And that's fine for a video game because you're only going to get it every three to five years. You know, it's going to be a big adventure. That's fine. But you, for a comic book, you need something to vary it up. So Rough and Tumble are meant to be the Rock City and Bebop mm. of the comic. They are the doofuses that show up to cause trouble. They're never going to be a huge threat, but they're enough of a problem that Sonic needs to step in. You know, I'm going to have some fun with and so on and so forth. Do you enjoy the the rhyming? <sighs> yes, because it's fun. No, because I have to find something that rhymes with tumble. And there aren't <laughs> a whole lot of words that rhyme with tumble. <laughs> I mean, it, um, it does kind of make them feel like again, like they belong in that world. It's one of like because they have that kind of that tick, right? Like that they have to rhyme everything. I don't know why, but it just makes them feel that they belong. There's a particular moment coming up in the Bad Guys miniseries where I have some fun with that. And that may be the biggest moment out of that miniseries I'm looking forward to seeing fully rendered. But uh, back to your question. With the characters, they're meant to fill that niche and they're supposed to feel like they fit into the world of Sonic. And so I pitch the character in concept to the editor, see if he likes it. He work, coordinates one of the artists on the team to do concept art for them, and then all of that is pitched to Sega to see if they like it. And they give their notes and feedback to tweak and adjust the character to fit what they feel like is best for the brand. Uh, thus far, it's been predominantly only in design, not so much in characterization. Mm. And then that's finally approved. We work it in the script, and we go from there. When the Sonic movie was announced, I mean, how, I mean, you guys working on the Sonic book, and now there's a movie coming out. What was, did you guys get any kind of internal pressure on to try and do something to synergize with the movie, or, or is that never even a conversation? Never even a conversation. Um, the impression I got was that the movie was done pretty much within its own bubble, and we were pretty much free to just keep doing our thing. 
What did you think of the movie? I liked it a whole lot more than I thought I would. Uh, the initial trailer filled me with not a lot of hope. <laughs> um, and I was very happy to be proven wrong. It was pretty much what a Sonic movie needs to be. It was light, it was funny, it was action-packed, and I adore Jim Carrey's Robotnik. Mm. Uh, the early trailer had me very worried because it just looked like, here's Jim Carrey doing 90s Jim Carrey, and that's what they're going to go with to get the parents to sit through the movie. <laughs> but he he has the quintessential elements that I love in Dr. Eggman, in that he was bombastic and he was charismatic, but he was also extremely sinister and cruel. Not just evil, but cruel. Mm. I think that's a big thing about Dr. Eggman when you compare it to a lot of video game nemeses from the 80s and 90s. And sure, he's got the big plans and whatnot, but there's this extra level of nastiness to him, pettiness, that makes him stand out. And I think makes him feel more dangerous than your Bowsers and Dr. Wileys. Mm. Please direct all hate mail to Adam. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> that's fair it's funny I remember when that, that first trailer came out for Sonic and I mean I, I felt like the internet went crazy and I was like eh, whatever it is what it is but I remember showing it to my son and he was like this looks so cool I'm so excited I'm like and that for me was kind of the moment of yeah it's not for me it's it's for him. Exactly. you know it's you know it's for all the kids who want to go to a movie and thankfully that's what the movie ended up being because I was yeah a little worried that you know are they going to try and make it again like you kind of said earlier with the kind of MCU trying to be realistic at times and kind of taking away some of that that extra fun thankfully that's not what it was and it was a, a movie that I could watch with my son I could enjoy it and so could he and even if I hadn't enjoyed it who cares you know like it's you got to make people fans and that's how you right. do it like like we were going back to what we started off with that's created a whole new generation of Sonic fans. Absolutely. I could sit here for an hour and relate to you the complex Sonic lore from Sonic Adventure to present, and you might find it interesting, but anyone under the age of 10 is going to get bored and walked off. They know Sonic is the funny guy who runs fast and has the cop friend, and he ran through the big warp rings. Wasn't that cool? And they're going to dig it. And there you go. The franchise has just found another decade plus of fans. And that's great. No, it didn't touch on every bit of lore detail or background information that I would like to see referenced. But I'm going on 40. It's okay. We can have new Sonic fans and something built for them. They had enough little nods and Easter eggs for me in there. Great. I love the... You know, effort, but it was for them, and that's great. And they did it right. It, it was Sonic at its core element, and can't really ask for more than that. No. Correction, you shouldn't ask for more than that, greedy. <laughs> It's funny, I've, uh, so sometimes, you know, my son would use Netflix on the, the kids' Netflix version, and he'd be, like, watching a Sonic cartoon. I'm like, I've never heard of this. Like, I don't know any of this. And he's like, oh, I'm watching, I'm listening, watching this one, and, or, I like, watching this one. So, speaking of, you've written some Sonic Boom. How did that happen? That was the right place at the right time, yet again. Uh, I was with Archie Comics, and we were doing our second big crossover event between the Sonic the Hedgehog book and the Mega Man book. And because it was a sequel, we had to go even bigger and better, of course. 
So we were also incorporating elements from Sonic Boom. And the Sonic Boom book had a few stories written by the showrunner and some of the show writers. And he was, the showrunner, Bill Freeberger, was looking at what I was doing with the crossover event, World Unite, and was seeing me juggle 16 different company properties in this multi-issue, multi-title crossover, and went, hey, he's actually pretty good. (laughs) And my editor, Paul Kaminsky, was like, yeah, he's pretty good. So Bill reached out to me and said, hey, we're doing, we're accepting scripts for season two. Would you like a shot? And I'm like, yes, please. (laughs) So I pitched a bunch of stuff to him. Uh, He picked out the ones he liked. Again, showed me how to format a script for television, uh, put his special touch on it, and what we got is what's on the TV. Wow, that's crazy. That's awesome. Now, what? Um, I, this might be a silly question, but uh, you know, obviously, being kind of the, the Sonic guy in terms of comics, do you keep abreast of kind of the, everything in the Sonic universe, or are you like? I mean, obviously, you're still a fan of the character, but how wide do you let it go? I try to consume everything. Like, I'm still researching stuff that was in Japanese-exclusive manga from the early 90s because I'm always looking for an opportunity to sneak in an Easter egg or a reference or to mine old material and give it a fun new spin. Uh, Because I, never mind that it's been my career for so long, but it's because I genuinely enjoy the franchise. Something about it just really appeals to me. And maybe it's because it's such fertile ground all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's it's fun because not only do I enjoy what I do, but it's something that I can enjoy working on even in my free time. It's a hobby as well as a job, and you, <laughs> it really doesn't get any better than that. What uh, I'm curious, what, you, what did you think of Sonic Forces? I think it gets a little more hate than it deserves, but it was a little rough around the edges. Hmm. I had fun playing it, but it wasn't the same experience as, say, Unleashed or Colors or Generations. Hmm. No. Now, my, my son did have a question coming out of the video of, uh, out of uh, Sonic Forces, which was, uh, <laughs> and I, I laughed, but I was like, oh, I'll, I'll ask him the question, even though I know the answer, but he wanted to know if a rookie would show up. And I'm like, yeah, but everyone has a different rookie. <laughs> Yeah, sadly, Rookie, Buddy, whatever you want to call him, has run off into the sunset to have his own adventures. But because he is your Rookie, whatever adventures you make up in your head are accurate. Whatever you dream Rookie is doing, he's doing it right now. Did, did you like the uh, the mechanic of, of, of Rookie and kind of not just having Sonic, but having this other kind of new character that you're creating with a you know a different species that you want him to be? I think it was brilliant, because the fandom is, oh, what's the word I want to use, known for their own characters. The menagerie of self-made Sonic characters is vast. So to finally give in to that, I thought was a smart move. Okay, so I I have a, sorry, go ahead. And you get down to it. You get to create your OC and have them rescue Sonic and go on adventures with Sonic in a worldwide adventure. It's it is the ultimate fulfillment. <laughs> you know? 
it's it's brilliant in its in that regard. Would you have wished that there was more? Like, I mean, you get to control Rookie and the two Sonics. Would you have preferred that there? Well, I guess Shadow technically later, but would you have preferred if they had other characters that were playable as well, or do you think they kind of stuck to what worked? Uh, personally, I really, really enjoyed Colors and Generations. I felt like that was 3D Sonic to a T. Unleashed as well, but that had the Werehog on its side, which was <laughs> its own thing. But I feel like with Generations where you had the missions where you could call in a specific buddy to help you get over certain obstacles or reach certain areas is kind of the way to go. Like the wisps are a fun power up option, but what if the friends were there instead? So Mm. Sonic is racing through the stage and you can take the main route or, Hey, your buddy tails is over there. Maybe you go over to him, and then for a brief segment, you fly his tails, and you find that collectible, or you take a shortcut so you get the faster time, or you get more rings on that route, and then you go back to Sonic and you finish it out. So that the core mechanic remains there. The Sonic gameplay is polished and well-defined, but you can also experience his vast extended cast in fun little sideways. Mm. That's That's my pitch for it. If, if anyone's listening on Sonic Team, I'm free. <laughs> so I have a, uh, a few questions that came in from uh, that I put on Twitter and also on uh, the Sonic group that IDW has. Uh, so I'm going to ask those. Uh, first comes on Twitter from uh, the Pighead. Said a bit of an easy question, but I always thought your ideas of scenarios were always unusual for a franchise like Sonic, like the Metal Virus arc. How did you come with them, and how are you able to make them feel like a Sonic-esque thing? Oh, and thank you for existing, sir. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think they also submitted that to the Bumblecast, you sneaky so-and-so. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's funny. So, hey, they, they thought of it, so I'm going to go with it. Just quick aside, Bumblecast, my personal podcast where I answer your questions. Listen to us every week. Anyway, shameless plug aside. <laughs> uh, with when pitching sto- When coming up with stories, I look at what we have, where we've been, and what's come before, and say, okay, what next? What has what questions have not been answered? What lingering perils are out there? Or if we've come up to a point, what can upset the status quo? And how does that work within the world of Sonic? With the Metal Virus Saga, in part it was inspired by a small bonus extra thing you could do in Sonic Heroes. In the multiplayer mode, if you held down, I think it was Y, when starting up a stage, the characters would get these menacing metallic skins. And uh-huh. I thought that was just a neat look. Huh. So, where can we use that? How, how do we justify this Easter egg? And the other side of it is, you look at what is the core conflict in Sonic. Dr. Eggman is turning animals into robots. All right. How do we take that and put a spin on it? Well, in the past, the process of robotization turned them into kind of zombie slave robots, but they were never truly threatening. It was more of a sad loss of free will. So what if we take that to another extreme? What if we make it so that being a robot creates more robots? Now your family and friends aren't just taken from you, but they can take you with them. 
that and how does Sonic fight the robots? Well, he smashes them with his face. That's <laughs> that is Sonic's gameplay since 1991. Well, what if we took that away? If he tries to hit these Zombots, he becomes infected, and now he is a liability. In all previous adventures, he could just grab his friends, whisk them off at Mach 1. There's no peril. Now he can't touch his friends. Now he can't beat the robots that he's up against. And if anything, he becomes a infection vector. How does that affect the story? How does that affect the world? How does it affect his friends and the dynamics between them all? And once those questions are posed, answering them becomes the plot lines and it becomes fun and you get the most family-friendly Walking Dead you've ever read. <laughs> I guess that's very true. I hadn't thought of it that way. A fan of mine actually said their uh, local comic shop was pitching it to people like that. <laughs> saying, have you been reading Sonic? No, why would I read Sonic the Hedgehog? Dude, it's basically The Walking Dead, but for, for kids. Okay, I'll give it a shot. And there you go. Wow, that's good. That's awesome. I guess it's it's very true. It's it's more apt than I would have thought, but yeah. So next uh, question is from uh, Solato, also on Twitter. Uh, who's the character in the Sonic franchise you want to develop or expand the most? All of them? Because <laughs> all the characters have to fit within a very specific set of guidelines. We get a little more wheel room with some more than others, but I would like to have those training wheels taken off for a lot of them. Mm. Uh, I would love to bring Infinite into the mix because he's got high fan demand. I would like to course correct Shadow, but that's well out of my hands. But pretty much any character is, you know, once again, where are they right now and what? where could we take them in interesting ways? Is there anything you can speak to about, uh, and I, again, if you can't, you can't, uh, about why uh, Infinite is off the table or just they just don't want to play with that character? Uh, they've asked that we not use him. That could change. Um, I don't know. It, in the past, there have been characters that we've been told, you know, we don't want you using them for X, Y, or Z or, you know, we don't get any explanation. It's just nope. Hmm. And then a year or two later, we can. So okay. So I have some questions that also came in from the uh, IDW Sonic Comic Squad uh, Facebook group. Um, so we have one from Garrett Werner. He actually had two questions. He says, "Now that you're temporarily stepping down from IDW Sonic Comics, are you still going to be doing feature outlines for particular franchises and comics that you're familiar with as well?" I would, number one, I'm not really gone from Sonic. I'm just not the lead writer for mm. right now. Okay. So I, I've worked with Evan. We've got our plan set for 2021. It's super exciting where we're going with stuff. She's got a lot of cool ideas. Can't wait for you guys to see it. And I'm so happy that I'm contributing as well. I'm writing Bad Guys, which is a miniseries focusing on the comic exclusive villains plus Zavok. And that's a lot of fun because it's all the bad guys being nasty to each other and to other people. So that's just fun in its own right. I don't care who you are. <laughs> uh, as for other writing gigs, there's a bunch of stuff I'm doing, all that I can't really talk about right now. But I'm always open to new projects, new licenses. Like I've done a bunch of video game tie-in stuff. I've done Mega Man. Mm. Uh, I did Arms for Dark Horse, which sadly hasn't seen the light of day yet, but that's because of various reasons, most of which I don't know. COVID being one of them, clearly. Mm, yeah. 
and other stuff that I almost got to do, and then they fell through before they saw the light of day, and it kills me because I can't talk about them. Ah! But uh, like, I love video games. I love comics. I love translating one to the other, or heck, vice versa. I'm I'm versatile that way. Is there versatile? Versatile. Is, is there a video game franchise that you would that like? that you really want to write that, I mean, that uh, it could be any franchise at all, but that you would really have a, a big idea for or something that you just kill to write? Star Fox. Oh, yeah? Right off the top of my head, Star Fox. I can tell you exactly how I'd plan out year one. I want to tell the story from 64 all the way to Command. I know exactly what I want to do. Just let me go buck wild, Nintendo. Please, I beg you. <laughs> Um, I would love it if I could get back on Mega Man at some point, especially if we could pick up where we left off with the old Archie book because it was so faithful to the games. Hmm. And I did so much research for Mega Man X because we got the license towards the end of the book's run. That's like, okay, I know what I want to do. I want to know, I know how I want to tell X1 through X9. No, X8. We want an X9. That's what it is. And, you know, that never happened. So just anything, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shantae, Shovel Knight, Metal Gear, Mario, Kirby. Ooh. Well, yeah, I'd love to do Skies of Arcadia, but I don't think I could ever really hold a candle to that. I would love to. Let me write the sequel to Skies of Arcadia. <laughs> I can die happy. I, I will kill myself happy. If that is the if that is the devil's bargain, just appear in Brimstone, yes, above, I know my contract. I've set the terms. Uh, question comes from Brad Barnes. Uh, will we see more girl villains, uh, I guess female villains, seeing they are not much in the Sonic series? This is a topic that seems to have come up a lot recently. I wonder if it's just because somebody broached the subject and everyone kind of jumped onto it. But, yeah, that is something I have noticed, is that... Uh, the, of the characters we've introduced over the past few years, all the males have been villainous, and all the heroes have been female. So uh, that needs to change. We, we need a good, solid female villain, because you don't really have a lot of those in Sonic. Mm. You've got, like, Arlena, and she was great, but she's also kind of confined to her role. You've got Wave, kind of, and Rouge, maybe... Xena's there. We need a good female villain, and I would like to do that at some point. Okay. And the second question from Brad was, uh, "What plan do that do you have for Stick the Badger? Will she be like the same from Boom version or something new?" That is entirely up to Sega. Uh, I wanted her back in season one hmm. as kind of a gag inclusion. She was supposed to show up during the final battle on Angel Island, and. Uh, that unfortunately got the kibosh. So she's kind of like infinite. She's off the table at the moment, but I want to bring her in. I would expect that she would be close to her boom characterization, but again, I can't be sure because it's entirely up to Sega. Okay. A uh, question comes from uh, Sage Defoe. Uh, if a new villain were introduced at some point who can take down Supersonic and others, thereby needing greater power to fight them, what are your thoughts on Hypersonic being introduced in the comics? I want hypersonic back so bad you don't you don't even know, man. It's the super it's the Super Saiyan Blue of <laughs> Sonic. Dump. 
It's just the only problem with hypersonic is once you let the genie out of the bottle, how do you put it back? Hmm. You know, supersonic is already a fairly broken character in terms of power set. What do you do when you go to a level beyond supersonic? So I want to see hypersonic back because it's freaking cool. But you also have to do it right, because once you set that bar, you have to live by it. I mean, that's a smart, a smart play, right? I mean, yeah, you're you're thinking long term. Like, if we if we bring this thing in, how do how do we get it back out without you know invalidating what we just brought in? Like, if it's if it's a viable option, why don't they always trot it out when something bad happens? You know, for sure. Now, I have a question that came in from a, a listener, Glenn Bramd. It's actually not technically a question. He just, uh, it's funny, because originally he, he reached out to me last week saying, you know, oh, I don't want to miss the cutoff for questions. I'm going to ask my six-year-old, because he's similar to me. He's reading, he's started picking up the book with issue one and reads with his now six-year-old. Um, and so he just wanted to let you know that they're big some fans of your Sonic work. And uh, he was asking if you could give a birthday shout-out to his son, Declan, who turned seven today. Happy birthday, Declan. You're seven years old, and now you can go super Declan. Now, apparently his favorite characters are Espio and Silver, and his favorite scene so far was when Sonic turned into Super Sonic. See, there's just something about that. Yeah, and he's got excellent taste. What can I say? Absolutely. Um, actually, he he mentioned something, and I, I did want to ask about this as well. He says, uh, you know, we hope to see more of Mr. Tinker. I love that concept. Um, what made you think of it? Again, it's... Uh, taking what is there and kind of turning it on its head. Uh, at the end of Sonic Forces, the heroes defeat Dr. Eggman and his big robot, and there's nothing about what happened to Eggman at the end. He's just gone. And the Phantom Ruby, which had been integral to it and Sonic Mania's story, messing with reality, is just kind of done. So I wanted to play with it in that you know it's a brand new Sonic story, what can we do that isn't just the rote Sonic versus Dr. Eggman? Something simple and exciting, but something that casual fans will be caught off guard by. And that's why we went with the Neo Metal uh, revival as our main antagonist. But if Neo Metal is active, where is Dr. Eggman? Well, what if the final battle you know, took him out of the fight, but we can't really do anything too gruesome? So, Phantom Ruby messed with his perception of reality and now he's Mr. Tinker and that was one of the easter eggs that I was very happy that we got to keep is that his outfit is based off of a very very early character design from pre-Sonic 1 oh wow when they were uh, conceptualizing who the main character should even be and it's a fellow who looks like Dr. Eggman but he's in sleepwear that has the pink shirt and green pajama bottoms and they let us do that. The only thing they said was take out the polka dots. Oh, Otherwise, really? they, they let the reference stand, and it was delightful. And uh, Mr. Tinker himself is not going to be returning anytime soon, but who he was and what he did is going to have longer-lasting ramifications. Mm. No spoilers. I like that as a... As a a vague kind of premonition of things we'll get to, we'll get to see when writing bad guys, well actually before bad guys, but coming up with Dr. Starline, what was that 
process like for you to kind of create? It's interesting because he's a flunky, but is also more than a flunky. And even in Bad Guys Number One, you kind of play with that idea that you know he doesn't really necessarily want to be a leader, but he kind of feels like he has to because the you know his idol kind of failed him. Starline is kind of complex in how he came to be, and some of that I can't get into because it plays into future plans. But in terms of characterization, uh, Eggman has a long history of backstabbing flunkies. There was Snively in the Saturday morning cartoon. The robot goons in Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog were loyal, but they were also dumb, too dumb to really be backstabbers. (laughs) Coconuts had aspirations, but eh, I'm kind of pushing it there. Uh, Dr. Grimer, out of the British book, Sonic the Comic, you know, started off as a sycophant who eventually decided, oh, he could do things better. We, we've seen this happen a lot with Dr. Eggman. And he works great when he has someone to bounce off of. So what I wanted to do with Starline was have that flunky, but to subvert the expectation of, oh, he's inevitably going to just want to take over because he's so much better. It's way more complicated than that. He is, at his heart, a fanboy. And everything he does is through the lens of Dr. Eggman is right. And right now we're in an interesting part in his life where that worldview is being sorely, sorely tested. And he is clinging to this notion that his idol is still great. It's just he doesn't realize some things. He can make it work. He can make it right. And and then everything will go back to the way it was. He can go back to his right hand and things will be just perfect. It was just a fluke. It's not because he's a amoral, myopic, self-centered monster. No, 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 no. He, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. He, he'll make it fine. You'll see. <laughs> Sounds like a very fun character to write. Oh, Starline is a delight. And seeing where he goes from here is both exhilarating and kind of heartbreaking in a way. Now, is Bad Guys the traditional kind of four-issue miniseries, or is it longer? Yeah, it's four, four issues. How how early, I mean, when you were kind of breaking the end of the the Metal Virus saga, how early did you guys know that you were going to do a spinoff with Starline? Um, not very early on. I don't remember exactly when that came down, but uh, it was a lot of circumstance. Like, number one, Tangle and Whisper getting their own miniseries so early into the life of the book played a major role. To have two comic-exclusive characters in a brand-new franchise book garner so much attention that they warranted the gamble of doing a miniseries. The investment of doing that is staggering. I'm still amazed that they were so well-received. I'm very thankful. It means we all did something right, but it's kind of unprecedented. So that opened the door to bad guys in general, or a another miniseries that was comic-focused. And then Dr. Starline, who was brand new at the time, you, you never know how well a new character is going to take off. You know, Whisper and Tangle have been embraced to an amazing degree. Roth and Tumble, not so much. They've got their fans, but that's fine. They're not meant to be big stars. 
So I didn't know if Starline was going to be, you know, someone that was embraced or someone that folks would be ready to see move on. And he has been readily and lovingly embraced. So that led to bad guys. When when you created the character of Starline, like where did the kind of character model of him being more, you know, he, he's kind of different, a different model than most of the other type of animals. I mean, he's a duck. Platypus. Oh, Platypus. Sorry. See, I'm I'm showing my my age, my animalisms right there. Um, <laughs> I'm an animalist, um, but like you know, he but still has a very kind of specific look that is does seem to set him apart from a lot of the other characters. Was that more specific, or is that just kind of a confluence of what animal haven't we used yet? Uh, again, it kind of ties into what I was thinking for a long time, and what will come to be. So I can't go too in depth on it. Okay, but uh, part of it was because. I am a big fan of just obscure animals. I just like neat things. I could go on at length about the Asian muntjac if you really want to. The Asian <laughs> barking deer. It has tusks. How cool is that? But uh, I just like weird animals. And the platypi, actually I think technically it is platypuses. I prefer platypi, but we're getting off topic. <laughs> the platypus animals are very weird in their own right with their toxic heel spikes and their electric sensing bills and just the look of them. So I want to use a platypus because they're neat looking. Uh, design wise, Evan Stanley went through a number of different takes. Uh, we were working kind of off of a general dapper evil scientist vibe and Sega uh, came in and helped refine it into something that was better fit within the Sonic universe. So he was definitely the construction of a lot of parties. Hmm. With, uh, with bad guys, I mean, how much can you tease about where we're going to go without obviously, you know, kind of uh, spoiling your master plan. But I mean, the first issue is such a great kind of get, getting this, this weird band together. Um, you know, what can you tease us about where we go next? I, <laughs> oh man, I want to tell you the whole thing, but that's no good. Uh, it's the name says it all. They're bad guys, so you put them in a room together. Bad things are going to happen, and whether that's to their intended target or to each other, I really can't say because they're bad guys. Anything is possible. What is it like to work in a book like this where you don't have the kind of primary prism of Sonic? I mean, because everything kind of ultimately gets folded through Sonic in his own book to a degree, but here you're kind of, you know, you're separate, separate from that, where you don't necessarily have to do that in the same degree. And again, you even have, you know, a lot more internal narration from Starline himself. So this is, again, their book. This isn't about Sonic. So how freeing is that from a writer's perspective? Because you don't necessarily have to directly, you know, relay it as to how Sonic would view it. It's a tightrope walk, I would say, because as freeing as it is to explore these characters in their own context, it still needs to be a Sonic book. If it strays too far from the course, then it becomes harder to guide it back to the main line. Whatever happens in Bad Guys needs to tie into the greater scope that is Sonic. So while it's tempting to just go wild with it, you have to keep in mind that this is born from a, a license and it needs to stay within the context of that license. And part of that has helped in that Starline is so tightly tied to Dr. Eggman and by extension Sonic. Hmm. His world revolves around Eggman, who in turn revolves around Sonic. So it's all remain 
contextualized within there. And then it's going back to what we were saying earlier about how to uh, construct plot lines is you have the question of, okay, Mimic ended here in Tangle and Whisper. Last we saw Rough and Tumble, they were there. Zavok was defeated at this point. Here's Starline bringing them all together. What does that mean? Where do they want to go with this? What would they do given the, the circumstance and see how it plays out from there? Very cool. Now, uh, uh, this is kind of a random question. If you could pick any Sonic video game to do a video game adaptation of, um, which one would you want to adapt? Oh, shoot, dude. I want to do everything from Sonic Adventure onward. I want us to do a straight-to-trade series where we just tell the modern Sonic story game by game, beat by beat, and just fill in that whole backlog of lore all the way up to Sonic Forces so you can have just this gigantic wall-wide library of uninterrupted Sonic story. Sounds awesome. I pitched it a few times, and I just kind of get nervous chuckles of, is he serious? <laughs> well, I feel like you, you would get, you know, again, that kind of multi-generational thing, because you'd have people who know those games, and they'd want to be like, oh yeah, I'll pick that up. And again, then you also have this younger crowd coming in as well, who'd be like, oh, more Sonic? Let's go. That See, that's what I think. But there's only, you know, so many hours in the day and so much money to go around. I don't know. Maybe this, one day. This is true. All right, Ian, thank you so much for spending so much of your time with us today. Uh, you've been extremely forthright in answering so many different questions. I feel bad that I haven't read so much of your Sonic work because it, it just didn't, it wasn't part of my, my, my life until my son, I started picking up this book when it was, actually I do have a, one final question. Sorry, I was almost about to let you off the hook. Um, <laughs> when when the series debuted from IDW, you had the four uh, four issues weekly for that first month. Um, which I do think was part of what helped me get into it because it was coming out so quickly. I'm like, yeah, well, I'll pick this up, and I already have four issues. Um, what were like? What were the discussions about how to launch this book, and what? How did they settle on we're going to you know do a weekly shot for that first month? Uh, going into it, IDW knew that there was a ravenous Sonic comic fan base. They had been without for a whole year after what was it, 12, 13 years hmm. of uninterrupted Sonic comics. So they knew the demand would be high. And as a special incentive stunt treat, they did the weekly release for the first four just for the sake of hype and for the sake of giving fans what they wanted, which I thought was really cool. You know, let's do something really insane because boy, howdy, that was a lot of work. Uh, just to get people excited and engaged, and I will tell you what, number all four issues went into second printings because they sold out, and number one, it went into a third and I think even a fourth printing. Oh, wow. People, uh, that, that's a lot of books to buy in a month, and people just tore through the stocks, so that was awesome. Thank you to everyone who set those records. Um, obviously, that's not a thing that we can maintain that was insane but just for that we everyone put in a lot of effort to make that, that special launch month happen mm -hmm. i do really appreciate the and we've kind of talked about this already but the way that you wrote those especially those first four issues because 
the way that you kind of you built up the cast again and you kind of had him going around and kind of meeting everyone we already knew and just kind of touching base with them from a new reader perspective really worked because you didn't feel like you were overloaded with characters. You got to slowly meet everyone one at a time so that, oh yeah, this is Amy, this is this is Tails, and kind of reestablish those relationships and then move forward. And again, doing it in that kind of you know, blur of a month where you have four issues really helped kind of set the stage. And again, I'm just speaking as someone who had never really dabbled with Sonic comics before. And from my son's perspective, I think it, get, it helped him really get into it and with, again, not feeling lost and not feeling like he really missed anything. That was all by design, and I'm very happy to hear it worked. Most of the feedback I get is from longtime hardcore fans who definitely see it through a very different lens. Hmm. So from a sonic layman such as yourself, <laughs> it's very valuable feedback. I appreciate it. And I'm very glad to hear that it worked for him and for you. Absolutely. Well, again, Ian, I will actually let you go this time. I uh, appreciate you spending... Are you sure? Spending I, the there's t- probably another question hiding there. I mean, there absolutely is, and the minute I, I hang up, I'll think of it. But uh, <laughs> I, I have taken enough of your time already. I very much appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to see more of Bad Guys. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Cheers.